Well, it's worth uh, turning to Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, page 841 of the Church Bibles, page 841. During uh, high school in year 10, uh, at about the point when we were supposed to be starting to think about what our future careers would be after school, uh, we were told to undertake two weeks of work experience, two weeks that was supposed to help us think through that process. And I remember in my first week I decided to work in a law firm in the city. And I remember very clearly arriving on the Monday morning and uh, really excited about what was, what was going to happen that week, all the sort of things that I would be a part of, learning the ins and outs of a law firm and uh, what a lawyer did uh, in their week. And I remember meeting my supervisor and he said, I've only got one task for you this week. He says, there's a court case and he named a particular court. He says, I want you to go there for the week and I want you to sit in the public gallery and I just want you to watch. And then come back at the end end of the week. You don't have to report in each day, but come back at the end of the week and tell me what you think. And so I did this, a little confused at first. It wasn't what I was expecting to do with my week, but I I turned up at the court and it turned out to be a murder trial. And uh, in fact, the trial had been going for some time. It was getting to the action part, the, the part that you usually see on TV, the accused was in the box and uh, the prosecutor was starting to hammer him with questions. And I, I discovered it as we went along that in, in the previous few weeks the, the defence lawyer had been trying to build up this picture of the, uh, of the accused, that he was a, a fun-loving guy, very gentle, would never hurt a flea, let alone murder someone. And so he'd built up this beautiful picture of him over these weeks. But then over the course of the week uh, that I witnessed, I saw the prosecutor tear that to pieces. It got so bad that at one point it was both the prosecutor and the judge having a go at the accused and the accused was getting so worked up that at one point he tried to leap out of the box and strangle the judge. And I was thinking right about that point he's lost any chance of being seen as a fun-loving, carefree, gentle guy. But I loved it, every minute of it. I couldn't wait to get back from lunch, didn't want to miss a minute. And I remember getting back at the end of the week and uh, my supervisor asked me, he said, well, what did you make of it? And I told him that. I said, I loved it. How good was that? It was so exciting. It was like watching a movie. I mean, I felt like bringing in popcorn to watch all the action (laughs) as it was happening. And he looked at me strangely and then he simply said, no, it wasn't. It wasn't great. It wasn't lovely. It wasn't exciting. It was a tragedy what you were witnessing. You, you think it's some sort of play that was put on for your entertainment, but it's not. It's a glimpse of where things get to when all hope is gone. It's a glimpse of the story behind the simple charge of murder. And he said that, he says, that's the simple charge, murder, but behind that is a story and it's not a pretty one. And I guess as I was looking at Ezekiel 16 this week, that's what came to my mind. In the past few weeks we've been watching God trying to confront Israel with their sin and we've been trying to grasp together just how sinful sin is from God's perspective. Three weeks ago we saw the origins of Israel's sin and really all of humanity's sin in our hard-heartedness and our hard minds. Two weeks ago David Todd showed us the very nature of our sin, of Israel's sin as well, idolatry. We've taken God off the throne that we saw at the start of this book and we've put ourselves there or something else and we've chosen to worship that. Well, tonight in Ezekiel 16 we come to the court case that sinfulness inevitably leads to and we see God bring a charge against his people. 
And like any court case, on the surface, the charge is quite simple. In fact, if you look at verse 2 of Ezekiel 16, the charge at the end of that verse is simply one Hebrew word. He says, Son of man, Ezekiel, confront Jerusalem with their adultery. Confront Jerusalem with her adultery. That's the charge. The scene is set. We, we take our seat to view the case. The judge is in session. He is the Lord that we saw at the start of this book, high and lifted up on his throne. He turns out also to be the prosecutor and the accused, Jerusalem, representing all Israel. And as we've seen in recent weeks, representing all humanity. That's who's in the dock. And so do the indictment, so do the charge against the case against Israel, against Jerusalem. You see it there, it starts to unfold in verse 3. And really, if you're trying to imagine a court case, there's no formalities here, there's no carefully argued uh, case by the prosecutor, by the Lord. Now this is a passionate account of the charge. As he begins, it's a bit like he says, well I could give you a series of facts of what's happened, but what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to tell you the story behind this charge. And I'm going to take you right back to the beginning, right back to the origins. And he does that for us in verses 3 to 5. And what the Lord is doing in these first few verses of this chapter is he's knocking out the props that Israel had set up, their perceptions of their own past, of where they had come from, of who they were. You see, they presumed their origins were noble. They, They were from Abraham and Sarah's stock. They were from the Exodus. But God says it goes back a lot further than that. Verse 3, he says to them, You were born in the land of Canaan, a land cursed, a land utterly forsaken by God. And as for your family tree, as for your parents, verse 3 again, he says, Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. You see, Israel traced their family tree back as far as Abraham. He was their father, that's who they'd come from. But God says, No, go back further than that. Your origins are nowhere near that noble. They are dubious. They are depraved origins, sinful origins. The Lord says to Israel as he starts to tell their story, if you want to know where you've come from, know that you were born in a cursed land to parents whose dominant gene was sinfulness. And as we've seen throughout our look at Ezekiel so far, this is true of us as well. Our story begins in no better place, born into a world under curse. And as for our descendants, we'll trace it back. And our family tree starts in the garden with Adam mistrusting God, rejecting God, rejecting his love. But as the Lord continues this story of Israel, it gets worse. Have a look at verse 4. He says, when you were born into such a place, to to such a family, you were born into a hopeless situation. As this child is born, you see it there in verse 4, she is a victim of ruthless, deliberate infanticide. None of the things that should be done uh, for a new baby girl's survival were done. Her umbilical cord isn't cut. She isn't washed. She isn't wrapped in cloths. Instead, she is thrown out into an open field, bare and naked, wriggling about in a pool of blood. It's a horrible picture, isn't it? A hopeless picture. 
Now we hear of this sort of thing from time to time, of, of infants being abandoned, of parents reaching some sort of desperate point where they see no other way out than abandoning their newborn. But this story is much worse than that. If you look at verse 5, there, there's no sense of desperation here. There's no pity. There's no compassion for this little one. This is a deliberate rejection of this child. And if left like that, it will surely die. Well, back to our story, we see, having seen this picture of, of Jerusalem's beginnings, of really our whole world's beginnings, we, we see how God responds to this. In verse 6, he describes himself as a traveller who happens to pass by this horrific scene and he sees what no one else does, this desperate baby, and he responds like no one else does with powerful, compassionate grace. He sees his little baby flailing about in a pool of blood and and his response in verse 6, the English doesn't get it across nearly as well. It's a passionate response. It's as if he sees this baby and he says, No, how could this be? Who would do this? He looks at it flailing about in this pool of blood and he says, In your blood, in your death, live. Little one, live. This is God, the compassionate rescuer, the God who gives life to the dead and not just life. You see how it goes on in verse 7, it's flourishing life, life to the full. Have a look how he cares for this little one. He says, I nurtured you, I cared for you from your infancy, I caused you to flourish. You were beautiful. Such was my care. I kept watch over you, he says, and in verse 8 we're told he spread his garment over her. As she grows into this beautiful woman, at one level it's a simple act of protection, covering her. But if you look at a book like the book of Ruth, you see Boaz do this to Ruth and it's a powerful, symbolic gesture. He is saying to this now fully grown woman, I intend to be your husband. I intend to protect you and provide for you. And so in verse 8 he makes good on that. He marries her. He pledges himself to her, to her good. And notice the way that this, this pledge, this promise is made. It's not like a normal marriage where, where the bride and groom turn and face each other and make promises to each other. Now this marriage is all about God's commitment. You became mine, he said. He assumes total responsibility, total care, total love. And what a love he has for his bride. Verse 9, we're told he lavished on her luxuries like she had never known. Verse 10, he gives her garments fit for a queen. And verse 11 to 13, he piles on her jewellery, silver and gold. Head to toe she is covered, she would have lit up the night. Amazing love. You know, I read this as a husband this week and it leaves any husband sitting here tonight in the shade, doesn't it? And the best I can do is a, is a bunch of flowers from the co-op. They're sort of drooping already. So, uh. But here is a husband of, of unending wealth, of undimming love, and he pours it all out on his bride. And the result, you see it there at the end of verse 13? You were a beautiful queen. That was Israel's experience. And her fame spread among the nations on account of her beauty. Because of the splendour that the Lord had given her, she was perfect 
declares the sovereign Lord. The Lord had given them all of this. It wasn't innate in that little baby in the field. It was a gift. So richly given that they reflected God's own splendour. They were a glorious testimony to his power and love. And you know what? This is the way the Lord acts in his whole world. This is the way he has created us, the way he sustains us. Abundant, extravagant grace. Tell me, as you walk around this world, do you remember that? Are you aware that everything around us, including our very lives, is his gift? Our world is a reflection of his splendour. Every good thing comes from him. A God who loves us. And his love has been constant from our infancy. Since our birth, he has been wholly and abundantly committed to our good. And despite the horrific mess that we have made of this world and even of ourselves, he continues to pour out that love, his provenient grace. It is, as the psalm says, that the steadfast love of our Lord never ceases. It is new every morning. You know, I was writing those words uh, early on Saturday morning and I'm looking out of my backyard and in the hills of Fullwood and it's covered in snow. You see that and you remember it, don't you? His abundant love. And you think about all the abilities he has given us, the ability to create things. You know, I harp on about this all the time, but how good is music? The, the way we can put notes together and the sounds that they make. I can't string any notes together, but I love the way they sound that they can stir the heart or they can comfort us or they can lead us to grieve or rejoice. God's given us that. What about the building we're in tonight or or, or the the many constructions we see around us? We we take it for granted, but having grown up with an engineer as a father, I don't take any of it for granted. I'm used to walking over bridges with him and he says, now let me tell you how this bridge was put together. (laughs) And I get endless details about what's holding it up. But, But it's true, all of it, the materials, the mind power, the vision for the new idea, It's all from him. Flight, light, glasses, poetry, coffee, computers, medicine, I could go on all night. All from him. Every good thing and not just the material things either, even our ability to think rightly about him and to act accordingly that comes from his hand. Do you see the transformation from this hopeless child in the field to this beautiful queen of great splendour? That was Israel. That is our world. It's an amazing picture. But then the unthinkable happens. Have a look at verse 15. Jerusalem, the bride, turns away from her husband and uses all the gifts that he has given her for the sake of prostitution. But you trusted in your beauty, says the Lord, and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. And it goes on all the way through to verse 36, a terrible story of how Israel had flirted with with pagan religions and, and nations, how they engaged in idolatry with them, how she had bowed down to their gods, ended treaties with them, covenants, even though the Lord had told them to be faithful. But she flirted. And not just flirted, she completely gave herself to them, offered herself to them. We're told in verse 27, such was was the amazing brazen nature of her sexual immorality that even the Philistines were embarrassed for them. 
Verse 28, she offers herself to the Assyrians and she's, she's not had enough. And so verse 29, it's the Babylonians' turn. And even then she begs for more. It's an awful picture of insatiable promiscuity, of unrestrained nymphomania. And you know what? The NIV version that you have in front of you, it's the U-rated version, the children's Bible version. It's, it's like the translators have, have read these words and thought, oh, I can't say that, we can't, we can't read that. But let me encourage you to, to try a version like the NASB, the, the ESV, and see what God is saying. He is pornographic in this chapter. If you want to find out how God feels when his people continue to deliberately sin, then picture a husband, an incredibly loving husband, whose wife has committed adultery. And not just once, but again and again and again. And without remorse, over years, over a lifetime, with anyone who happened to pass by. That's Israel. And yet if it were possible to get worse, by around verse 30 we we see it does. You see, she's not really a prostitute. She's worse. At least a prostitute gets paid for their work. You know, unless you give her money, she won't ply her trade, says the Lord. But but Jerusalem, well, she stood on any street corner and, and offered money for her services, gave out gifts. This is the story of Israel and, to be honest, it's our story. And we need to hear it because it's crucial for our self-understanding, our self-awareness. It's sobering and we've only heard the PG version. And I've got to be honest, as I started to look at this passage this week, this is hard stuff to preach. You know, I want one John back. I want the joy passages back. I, I was thinking about it this week. Ed Pennington has put together this, this series on Ezekiel and he's done a great job, mind you. But uh, there's a saying we have in Rugby League and Union in Australia, I think you have it here, the hospital pass. Well, this is the hospital pass passage, the sort of pass that floats in the air and just where you're trying to catch it, you're going to get slammed. Well, that's the sort of passage we have in front of us. It it hits us, doesn't it? It's hard for us to hear and it's hard for our world to hear because I think we think of ourselves essentially as pretty good. We're good at heart. Maybe we've lost our way a little bit, but if someone was to come along and just guide us, then we'd reach our potential. And there are churches all over the place that will teach you that kind of thing. We're not bad, really. Essentially good. God believes in you. And he's come in Jesus to to reach up and just sort of help you out a bit so you can be the person you can be. But as far as I can tell, that's not a message God ever gives us. And so I take it that it's not true. This passage takes our pride and our self-esteem and it pulls the props from under it. I was thinking about that this week and I was reminded of the movie uh, Spanglish. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's Adam Sandler trying to be serious uh, and he, he plays a sort of a restaurateur and he's married to uh, uh, Tia Leone, I think, is the actress that plays his wife. And as the movie goes on, it becomes apparent, not, not to Adam Sandler, but to Tia Leone's mother who lives with him, that she's having an affair with the real estate agent. And slowly she watches Tia Leone fall further and further into this relationship. And there's one scene where, where Tia Leone is heading out uh, again to see this guy and her mother tries to stop her and says, what are you doing? 
And she says, oh, i just got some things to do. And her mother says, no, I know what you're doing and you've got to stop. And Tia Leone turns back and says, you're always doing this, Mum, you're always bringing me down. This is why I've got such low self-esteem. And the mother's response, well, lately your low self-esteem is just good common sense. As I look at this passage, I think that's true of us. Sometimes we have to have the courage to stare reality in the face if we are going to learn about ourselves. Let me give you three things that we need to hear and our world needs to hear from this passage if we are to understand ourselves rightly. Firstly, have a a look at verse 22. This is the first thing that gets us into this state. The Lord says, In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and kicking about in your blood. What Israel has, has failed to remember is what she was like in the beginning as this poor abandoned baby until God picked her up and said, live. And our world does the same. We forget or we ignore or perhaps we never see where all this beauty has come from, where all the gifts have come from. We forget God's amazing love. And in forgetting, that leads us to the next thing we see in verse 15, our pride. The beauty of our world, our our abilities, our minds, even our very life becomes a source of pride for us. But you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. We end up trusting in the splendour of our gifts rather than the giver. And having forgotten and having become full of pride, it leads to the inevitable. We become unfaithful. Have a look at verses 17 to 19. I don't think you'll see a more insightful account of what we are like and what our world is like, about the way we behave. We take the gifts that God has given us from his love and we make idols out of them. We then take these idols and we give our hearts to them and then we spend the rest of our lives using our other gifts that he has given to feed those idols. We do it with so many things. Career, beauty, sex, responsibilities, family, entertainment, technology, you name it. We take something that is a gift that's meant for God's glory, that that we're meant to enjoy for his honour, that's meant to promote in us gratitude and joy and faithfulness and service to him, that's meant to assure us of his love And we take it and we become so intoxicated with it, so in love with it, that it becomes our God. And our gratitude and our joy and our faithfulness is given to this idol. And our security and our sense of value comes not from God, but from this dull, mute, speechless, lifeless gift. And we spend the rest of our lives serving it, feeding it, paying it, hoping it will love us back. But none of these gifts are designed for that sort of love. They cannot hold the weight. None of them can give us the security, the love, the joy, the purpose that we so long for and so need. Forgetfulness, pride, unfaithfulness gets us to that point. And so this is a court case and the inevitable happens in verse 35 onwards. We see the judgement of God. 
Let me read verse 43 for you. Sums it up. He says, Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all of these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Really, there are three stages to God's judgment. Verse 37, we're told, he gives us over to our unfaithfulness and its consequences. He gathers up our our lovers, our idols, the things that we love in place of him and whereas we gather them towards us to love them, he gathers them to judge us. We become a victim of our own idols. Secondly, again in verse 37, God, our lover, removes his garment from us. We find ourselves alone and exposed in the world. We say, I want to live without him. And he gives us that. We are left naked and bare. Our fortunes come full circle. And finally, verse 38, we see the logical end point, the sentence for the crime of adultery, death. Reject the giver of life and you find death. And when we come to our own death, our idols, our lovers are of no help. In fact, they become our enemies. Having taken every last bit of our love and energy, they leave us naked and bare, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is a really hard word, isn't it? It's not one we want to hear. But it may well be what we need to hear. Let me suggest, let me finish by suggesting two things that we need to do in response to this passage. Firstly, have a look at verses 59 onwards. We need to remember what the Lord is like. Verse 59, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Remember what the Lord is like. Jerusalem didn't remember the days of her youth, but the Lord did. He remembered his bride, his beautiful queen, whom he had bound himself to. He remembered. And so he takes his covenant love and he makes an eternal covenant out of it that can never be removed. We're told in verses 61 to 63 that he restores in us what is lacking, our memory. He restores in us the knowledge of himself that we so desperately need. You will know that I am the Lord, he says. And then most importantly, he makes atonement. He won't ignore our sin. He can't, for he is holy and just. But he knows it's not in Jerusalem, either in their will or capacity to atone for all they've done. And so he says, as you see in verse 63, I will atone. I will make up for this. This is what the Lord is like. We know how seriously he treats our sin. We know how obscene it is to him. And yet he loves us enough to make atonement for it. He knows all about the damage that we've made and yet he takes us. How else do you explain the obscenity of the cross? An innocent man, the only one ever, convicted unjustly, abused until he can barely walk, and yet forced to carry his own cross on a back that's been flayed raw, exhausted, gasping for air. How do you explain that? What kind of God would permit that sort of death 
What kind of father would let his son go through that? What would have had to have happened for that to occur? Answer, you happened. I happened. Sweep away for a moment the sentimentalism of the cross and you see God's R-rated answer to our sin. He says, I will atone for what you've done. Remember what the Lord is like. See his gift for what it is because it's a gift that blows out of the water any other gift that he gives us. He sees the damage. He loves us and buys us back. And not with gold or silver or all the jewels that he may pour out on us, no, but with the precious blood of his son. Remember what the Lord is like and secondly and lastly, don't forget. Don't forget what you once were. Whenever we we find ourselves looking back and seeing anything that we've done that leads to pride before the Lord, then it's time to remember again. For whatever our estimation of our own righteousness is, the Bible tells us that we are all as one on this matter. Standing before God, in the dock, silent, no defence. And it's only in not forgetting that that we will flee every day to his mercy. Don't forget what you once were and don't forget what you are now because of Jesus. That you have one who speaks to the Father in your defence and he is the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the atoning sacrifice for your sins. And in not forgetting what you once were and in not forgetting what you are now, you will not forget why you can't go back. Why the idols and lovers that tempt our hearts are not worthy of them. Why faithfulness to the Lord is better by far because as Psalm 63 puts it, God's love is better than life. Let's pray.